Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. This week in London, I'm John Fassman. And right here next to him, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This summer's hit film, Maverick, is a pay-on to gutsy fighter pilots. In the real world, however, aggressive Chinese pilots have provoked complaints from America, Australia, and Canada, along with questions about the strategic goals of those flights. And a gripping tale from one of our correspondents. He tried to cut his own hair failed miserably, got a professional to fix his mess, and learned something about textbook economics along the way. First up, though. It's a worry that has haunted much of the year so far. An ailment looming in one part of the world, hints of it in another. Hardship coming just as pandemic recovery seemed more assured. That worry is recession. In America, Jay Powell, the chair of the central bank, recently hinted at the interest rate rises yet to come, but also at some troubling uncertainty. Our objective really is to bring inflation down to 2% while the labor market remains strong. What's becoming more clear is that many factors that we don't control are going to play a very significant role in in deciding whether that's possible or not. Europe's reliance on Russian gas has led to a different set of uncertainties, and China's response to COVID-19 contributes yet more. How to tame inflation, to deal with energy price spikes, to reckon with hiccups in the world's second largest economy? What's been itching at the back of economists' minds is now starting to keep them up at night. For some time now, since the spring really, people have been worried that higher interest rates, especially in the US, and higher energy prices, especially in Europe, would create an economic downturn. And what's beginning to happen is that both those forces are getting bigger. Henry Kerr is our economics editor. And we're seeing the initial signs of a slowdown in the world economy, in the economic data. So investors are getting pretty worried now about an economic downturn. But as you say, that's for different reasons in different places. Why don't we start with America? What's going on there? In America, the big threat is from higher interest rates. This year, the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates and marked up its predictions of where interest rates are ultimately going. And the historical record shows that when interest rates rise as much as they are this year, a recession typically follows within 18 months to two years. And we are seeing a really sharp adjustment. And the reason the Fed's doing that is to fight inflation. And until the inflation looks like it's going away, that threat from higher rates is going to persist. Energy prices are a factor in the US. The cost of petrol has gone up a lot. But it's really those higher interest rates that I would point to as the big economic threat. But the last couple of downturns that America has seen have been pretty deep. What what do you reckon this time around if it should come? 
the good news is that recessions which play on vulnerabilities in the economy, such as households who have borrowed too much, as was the case in 2007 with the housing bubble, or overstretched corporate balance sheets, or vulnerabilities in the financial system, those recessions can feed in themselves and become very deep. And the global financial crisis was extremely deep. The pandemic was obviously in its own class, a recession caused by physically shutting down the economy. So there's a lot of hope out there that the recession that is, in my view, likely because of the degree of monetary tightening that's happening, that that recession can be a bit milder, that you just need sufficient slowdown in economic activity to get inflation down, but that shouldn't take too much pain. The big risk around that is that the Fed has to make sure it doesn't overdo it, which would be easy to do. And if it does more than it needs to to get inflation down, then you could end up with something deeper. But uh, hopefully, even if uh, a recession may be necessary to get inflation down, it won't need to be very deep. And meanwhile, in Europe, what, what are the dynamics there? Europe also has high inflation, but it's much more driven by high energy prices than it is in the US. The overall rates are above 8%, are sort of comparable in the two places. But in Europe, both because its energy prices are higher, because it's got a natural gas shortage, which isn't the case in the US, and because energy is a bigger share of people's incomes in Europe, because basically because Europe's poorer than the US. And for those two reasons, energy is what's really biting the European economy. And it's taking so much money out of people's pockets and will over this winter that they will have less to spend on other things. And, and that could by itself push the European economy into a recession. In addition, the European Central Bank, like the Federal Reserve, is raising interest rates because it's worried about underlying inflation to the kind of non-energy, locally driven inflation. That is a worry in Europe, but it's not as big a worry. So the question is, how will monetary tightening add to this big shock that's being caused by energy prices, whereas perhaps in the US it's the other way around? And one place that we haven't mentioned yet is China, which was a, a big question mark when we've spoken in the past about recession risks because of its zero COVID policy. Where are we on that? What's going on right now is that China has actually managed to successfully ease some of its restrictions, especially in cities such as Shanghai, which are under a really severe uh, lockdown. So China's coming back quite a bit in the economic data. It's providing a bit of a boost to the world economy because demand from China is going up. The real question is the extent to which that is sustainable. Is it going to be the case that future outbreaks of Omicron or indeed future variants in China will create this sort of whack-a-mole problem where the restrictions are going to come back in simply because the Omicron variant is so transmissible and the later lineages of the Omicron variant are more transmissible still. So I still think China has a problem on its hands with the zero COVID policy. It's just not biting quite so much right now. So how do those factors at play in America, in Europe, in China, feed into what's happening with economies elsewhere? If you look at the emerging world, you have a lot of countries that are dealing with the same energy and food price shock as the rich world, but from a worse position because those essential items are a bigger proportion of consumer spending because the countries are, are poorer and they're in a worse position because their governments are less able to cushion the blow. And a lot of emerging markets have debt sustainability issues coming out of the pandemic, which have begun to bite in some places with notable crises, for instance, in, in Sri Lanka. So I think it's bad news for a lot of the poor and emerging world to have this simultaneous effect of a direct knock from higher energy and food prices, and then a global economy that's slowing 
and could indeed go into recession, which means lower demand for their exports. Typically, emerging markets run into some trouble when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, because what happens is that attracts investment out of poor parts of the world and into the US because the the safe return is going up in the US. So the dollar gets stronger. And that's bad for emerging markets. So I think it's a pretty bleak environment out there for a lot of poor countries. I I would say that the, the picture you have presented is a little bleak for all and sundry. Yes, although I would point out that an awful lot hinges on that US inflation data. In the event where inflation started to come down and people began to seriously bet that maybe the interest rate rises in the US don't need to be as severe, then that has the potential to set financial markets soaring because they're very worried about higher interest rates. It has the potential to provide relief for the poor world because it would mean a weaker dollar. It wouldn't solve the energy crisis and the food crisis, which fundamentally stem from the war in Ukraine. And I don't think there's reason to be optimistic that that's going to clear up anytime soon. But the inflation outlook remains uncertain and good news on that front could change the picture quite quickly there. Henry, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. America and China may be one military accident away from disaster. Recently, several Western governments have accused Chinese pilots of dangerous maneuvers in the international airspace near China's coasts. But beneath those accusations lies a deeper question Why are China's pilots flying so aggressively? We are seeing some Western governments going public with their severe concerns about what they call dangerous intercepts involving fighter jets from the Chinese People's Liberation Army, or the PLA, over the sea close to China's coasts. And this is international airspace. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. Chinese pilots have flown so close that diplomats from America, Australia and Canada, at least as far as we know, and there may be others, have lodged formal complaints with the foreign ministry in Beijing. And we saw the leaders of some of those countries going public as well. David, tell us more about those complaints and the incidents that prompted them. We have incidents over the South China Sea involving an Australian surveillance plane. It's international airspace, according to everyone except China. And Australia said that the Chinese behaved extremely dangerously. The Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese made very clear that they think the Australian plane was put in danger. The intercept resulted in a dangerous manoeuvre which did pose a safety threat to the P-8 aircraft and its crew. The Australian government has raised our... Canada was flying a patrol in support of United Nations sanctions, essentially trying to spot North Korea and Chinese ships transferring oil at sea to smuggle and bust UN sanctions. UN sanctions, it should be said, that the Chinese signed up to. 
And so when the Chinese started buzzing then too closely, you saw the Prime Minister himself, Justin Trudeau, saying that China was not only being dangerous, but how did this square with China's UN sanctions obligations? China's actions are irresponsible and provocative in this case, and we will continue to register strongly that they are uh, putting uh, people at risk uh, while at the same time not respecting decisions by the UN to enforce UN sanctions on North Korea. So the Americans, I understand, have made their own complaints about some dangerous interceptions in recent months. But for the first time in public, we saw the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who was in Singapore for a big regional security summit, and he spoke about this. Now, this should worry us all. And the stakes are especially stark in the Taiwan Strait. Our policy is unchanged and unwavering. It has been consistent across administrations. And we are determined to uphold the status quo that has served this region so well for so long. So Lloyd Austin says this should worry us all. What would happen if there was to be a collision? We know that it would be an incredibly dangerous situation. The first time I was a China correspondent, I was here in 2001 when an American spy plane basically had to do an emergency landing because it was about to crash after a Chinese fighter pilot had been buzzing it, playing very close games, uh, showing them at one point his email address to try and kind of frighten them. And he misjudged a close pass on his third run and he clipped the engine and went into the sea and died. And this then triggered a kind of hostage crisis where the crew of the EP-3, the, the American spy plane, were held in a military guest house in Hainan Island in south of China for a couple of weeks. And it was really, really difficult to fix that. It took both governments to really take risks to end the standoff. The brand new American president, George W. Bush, had to basically issue something that was not an apology, but sounded something like an apology and was certainly translated as an apology by the Chinese side. This has been a difficult situation for both our countries. I know the American people join me in expressing sorrow for the loss of life of a Chinese pilot. Our prayers are with his wife and his child. I appreciate the hard work of our ambassador to China. And so basically the Chinese let the crew go in exchange for this letter expressing regret. That was a very different China, far less powerful than today, run by a leader far less assertive than the current supreme leader, Xi Jinping. And you have to worry that if there was the same miscalculation, it would be very difficult for a leader as assertive as Xi Jinping in a country that has been whipped into a state of extreme nationalism over the last 20 years, it would be very difficult to repeat that climb down of 21 years ago. Given that, it seems extraordinary that China's pilots and China itself is willing to take such risks. You're right. And I think there is a degree of disbelief on the Western side that China is doing this. The problem is that this has now happened, we think, scores of times. The Canadians have talked about 60 missions that have had trouble. And so this is clearly not an accident. This is not a rogue Chinese pilot. This is a decision by the Chinese state. And so this is a political act. And essentially, if you talk to senior Western diplomats here in Beijing, where I am, about their attempts to engage with the Chinese side about, can we have some rules of conduct? This is very dangerous. It would be a disaster for all of us if we had an accident. Can we talk about how to fly safely close to each other and consistently the message from the Chinese military and from the Chinese government is, no, the safe distance that we want is thousands of miles away. We are not willing to talk about how Western countries operate safely close to our shores. You have no business being close to our shores. 
But surely America, China, and the world generally, they have plenty of reasons for not wanting the relationship to break down, to deteriorate, right? That is the constant kind of question, which is given that the US and China alone do $2 billion worth of two-way trade every day of the year, how can relations be as bad as they currently are? And I think that the fundamental problem is that although China clearly needs technology and investments from Europe, from America, it still needs to be part of the global economy. That China has decided that its economy is so important to global growth that basically companies will suck it up and stick around and that governments will suck it up and stick around. And in the meantime, they also have decided that the West is basically not willing to let China rise. And so the West, if you like, is too dumb, too racist and too selfish to realize that China is winning. And so you need to teach them an instructive dose of pain. And so I think that what you're seeing with these repeatedly dangerous intercepts is, yes, the Chinese government is entirely rational. They understand there could be a terrible accident. But their view is that if they ratchet up the danger levels high enough, that in that terrifying game of chicken between nuclear great powers, that the West is going to back down first because China is tougher and has a higher risk threshold. And it's an incredibly dangerous game. So, David, you're in the unique position of having covered both China and America for a very long time. I wonder what you think the result of this ratcheting up of tensions will be. Do you worry that we're heading into a period like like that to define the 20th century? We've got two great powers facing off against each other in a Cold War? Yeah, I think that the grounds for cooperation are getting very, very thin. And I think the danger of that is two things. What is different between where we are now and the Cold War between the U.S., and the Soviet Union. Well, for one thing, the US and the Soviet Union did no trade at all. They were basically entirely military and ideological rivals. That was bad enough, but the world's economy didn't rest on it. The other problem is that I think from here I am in Beijing, there is a constant note of contempt and suspicion and real disdain from Chinese officials, Chinese scholars, the Chinese public towards America. And I think in these kind of very, very dangerous nuclear armed standoffs between great powers, The one thing that is more dangerous than hating your enemy is underestimating and despising your enemy. And I worry greatly that that is the mood that the Chinese have got themselves into. David, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. So I was in Dakar, the capital of Senegal, which is in the westernmost point of Africa. And having had a chance, glance in a mirror, realized that I, I desperately needed a haircut. And then rather foolishly, I tried to do it myself using a beard trimmer. And of course, soon the guard slipped. Then I was left with a number one cut into the back of my haircut and a, and a great big stripe down the back of my head, which was uh, pretty embarrassing to say the least. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist and is based in Senegal. And so I went on a desperate search for the kind of quickest barbershop I could find to try to fix my troubled thatch and eventually found a friendly, profuse, a female hairdresser. Well, I can see on the call that things don't look too tragic now. She must have have done a good job. Uh, She certainly did. Um, Expertly so, I think it's fair to say. But I certainly paid for it. She presented me with a bill that I I think it's fair to say would have made any hairdresser in Manhattan blush. And I was suddenly struck that this was quite strange because it, it rather undermined one of the theories that I studied in economics back in university. 
What's the theory and, and how does this haircut interfere with it? <laughs> the theory goes that the prices of goods that are traded internationally should not vary nearly as much as goods that can't be traded like haircuts, for example. So any economic student in the rich world is told and probably could tell you that when you're in a poorer country, it's a good time to get a haircut. That's because the price of a trim depends largely on local wages, and they tend to be much lower in poorer countries. But my bill for the rescue operation of my hair didn't seem to reflect that. And it seemed to me that perhaps the haircut theory, in many ways a sort of cherished bit of practical advice from economics, may actually be wrong. Is there a chance that what happened here isn't a breakdown of economics, but that you kind of got taken for a ride, Kinley? (laughs) It's a possibility. This particular stylist had lived briefly in Paris, so maybe she brought her idea of normal prices from the chic sixth arrondissement. But actually, Dakar is bristling, I think one could say, with cheap salons. And competition between those different barbershops should have snipped away at her hopes of selling costly cuts. But in fact, her business was bustling along, as is another rival salon I checked out later that merrily charges similar prices. And the clientele of these are mostly well-heeled Senegalese and a few expats. So, okay, how to reconcile this then with the fundamental economics that have been rumbled here? These sort of heady prices may partly just be a signal that the barber is as good as a Parisian one, for example. And of course, going to that kind of a shop may be a way of displaying wealth. But one of the clear things is that haircuts are less fungible, less tradable, if you like, than professors often claim, because actually prices differ widely within the same city. But that suggests another kind of classic assumption in economics doesn't quite apply either, and that's the assumption of perfect competition. Oh my God, the entirety of economics is crumbling down. What do you mean? I'm sure some of the edifice of economics will survive my brush with a barber. But for competition to be perfect, products need to be nearly identical. But the market for mohawks or indeed other cuts in Dakar clearly shows this isn't the case. I mean, there are a variety of barbers to choose between. Some are blasting Afrobeats, others have got the football on, some have got comfier chairs. And so the prices can vary by orders of magnitude almost from a few dollars to 50, 60 or more. And perfect competition also requires that clients have got perfect information about the options on offer. But of course, many of the best snippers in Senegal don't shop on the internet. Most do their business by word of mouth. And then the tangled traffic of Dakar may also keep these extortionate stylists in business in swanky suburbs, while high rents and red tape might keep the competitors out. Okay, so what is the advice that should be given then? Well, it is an admittedly small study, and of course, I may have paid for my haste and embarrassment, but it does suggest that economics professors ought to update their advice. You know, students should perhaps get their hair cut not just in poor countries, but once they're in poorer parts of town. And perhaps more fundamentally, whatever happens, they really should not cut their own hair. Thanks very much for joining us, Kinley. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organisation better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.